Hi, this is Ricardo, pastor of Journey Church Ventura. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our podcast. Hope you're having a great week. We hope it's life-giving and life-changing. Take care. Good. A lot of uh, excitement and energy here today. So great to see you guys here on our uh, best summer ever together. And I, uh, I got to be honest, I feel like I've been missing out with uh, the best summer together because I've not been with you since like June, I think. And I, it's been a good summer so far. We did a lot of cool things. Uh, we went on a road trip, uh, got to go visit. I visited the Hoover Dam for the first time ever in my life. Um, I made a lot of dam jokes. Yeah, I, I am a dad, so I could, had, had to do that. I asked the kids they wanted to get some damn water. And my wife said, that's enough of the damn stories. So we stopped doing that joke. Um, got home, and uh, then our whole family uh, got to experience COVID together, which was crazy. Uh, thankfully, God has helped us overcome it, and we we're all uh, mostly on the mend. Uh, but it just, you know, it's crazy when you look at what life can be. You know, we've gone through a lot together as a family here, here at Journey, and just to see God's faithfulness over and over again is so incredible, isn't it? And as I'm listening to worship and hearing such enthusiasm, I love the fact that when you guys worship, you clap like crazy. You clap when you get excited about what God's saying to your heart. And that's what's so amazing, because as we look through God's faithfulness, we can say it truly is our best summer together, uh, but I would like to say it's our best year together, our best life together, because that's truly what it's all about. Is this idea of that we have these things that we share, and what's, what's cool about worship and moments like this, that we tell each other the stories of God's faithfulness over and over again. And that's really what the parables of Jesus really are. They're these moments where Jesus stops, he tells a story, and he does it for a reason, because some, sometimes it's, it's good to hear, well, a story. And I like to tell stories. I love to read stories. Um, I'm a book collector. I love books. My bookcase at home uh, has about a thousand books on it. Uh, I would have more if I could, but my wife bought a very large bookcase when we got married 23 years ago, and she said, that has to fit on here. And so it's double, like, stacked. I've got books stacked and hidden behind places and corners, and I, I, I love getting books, and I, they're like old friends to me. Do you ever read the same books over and over again? I mean, besides the Bible, because you all do that because you're good Christians, okay? So forget that one. But do you ever read the same book over and over again? It's like, you're like, oh, I just like seeing this, this story again. I like, I like visiting this old friend. And stories, I love it because stories can be nonfiction. And some of my favorite stories in nonfiction are like the life stories of people like John Adams, Alexander Hamilton. I love reading about the building of the Panama Canal or the, uh, the very dry but interesting memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. I'm, yeah, I'm that kind of a guy. I actually got really uh, down in, in, in the deep when I was stuck in my room with COVID. I started reading like um, these books, a uh, book that I've had since I was in, in the sixth grade. And when I got it, it's called The World's Last Mysteries, right? It's like one of those old Reader's Digest books. Does anybody even remember Reader's Digest? Yeah, okay, thank you. I'm not, as, I'm not alone here. I'm glad to hear that. And as I'm reading, like, I realized when I was a kid, I never read the stories. I just looked at the pictures. And here's all these things like about Atlantis, about Machu Picchu, about uh, uh, Teotihuacan, which is the, the, the largest Mesoamerican city that existed at the, at the time pre-Columbian history. It's right outside Mexico City. It was the sixth largest city in the world, and then suddenly everyone who lived there just stopped living there. That's an interesting story. I'd like to find out more about that. 
But I also love a good fiction story as well. Some of my favorite things to read are about fantastical worlds. When I was a kid, my grandparents introduced me to the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. When I was in the third grade, I read The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. And my third grade teacher said to my parents, does he even understand what he's reading? Because The Lord of the Rings is, you know, that's, that's, that's intense when you're in third grade. There wasn't a movie to help it make sense. Uh, but I fell in love with it. I love Bilbo Baggins. I love Harry Potter. I love Oliver Twist. I love stories. C.S. Lewis, who uh, continues to be one of my favorite writers, uh, said one time that sometimes stories say best what needs to be said. Stories can help us understand a truth in a different way. You see, stories break down walls because they are made up. Stories engage in ways that facts and information don't. In fact, I believe that stories have the power to change people, change lives, and even change the world. In fact, I believe the story we are looking at today, if we truly understood and lived it out the way we should, would bring healing, understanding, and a whole new level of grace and love to our country and to our world. Would you mind joining me in prayer real quick? And let's pray for today's uh, story. God, thank you so much for a day like today. Best summer together. Because you're here, God. When we say best summer together, it's because you are with us. And God, I pray that you will open our hearts, open our ears to hear what you have to say today. You told this story almost 2,000 years ago, and yet it still resonates. It still means huge things for us today. May we, as you used to say, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's hear what you have to say to us today, God. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today's story starts with a question. One day... An expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, because the man asking the question is an expert in the Jewish law, he already knows the answer to the question. Jesus knows that he knows it too. That's why Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Jesus knows that the man is trying to test him. So he pushes back a little bit. He says, you know, you already know the answer to the question. You're an expert in the law. What is it? What does the Bible say? The man answers, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Boom. That's a good, solid answer. This is the summary of most of the rules and regulations found in the Old Testament. I mean, if you really wanted to summarize the really boring books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers and try to make them make sense, it comes down to this. Love God, love people. That's what we're commanded to do. I love what Jesus says here. He says back to him, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. You want to have eternal life? Love God, love people. Good job, buddy. You know the answer. Seems pretty easy, right? Yeah, except it's not. (laughs) loving God, that one we probably do okay with. It's easy to love God. God, we love you. We just sang songs to you. Ah, But loving people? Mm. Have you met some of the people? I mean, hard to love everybody. I was on the road last night driving home from my uh, daughter's concert, and I'm driving down the road, minding my own business, singing a song with all my heart, and suddenly this guy passes me on the left, at an intersection, he's supposed to turn left at the left turn and passes me as the light changes, cuts me off. And I got to tell you, I did not love him right then. I used some unchurched words in that moment. 
and had to apologize to my daughter, Autumn. I'm like, I am so sorry. I did not know where that came from. And I'm preaching tomorrow. Lord, forgive me. Right? You can't always love everybody. That's why the guy who's asking the question, this teacher of the law, gets a little worried. He may be doing okay at the loving God part, but he's not too sure about the second part. In fact, he knows that his idea of loving his neighbor may not match up with Jesus's. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's pause for a moment, because it's important for us to understand what the word neighbor meant to Jesus's audience. To us today, a neighbor means people who live next door, people who live in our community. Uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. And what does he sing? Won't you be my neighbor? Hello, television neighbor. I'm glad we're, you know, we think of Mr. Rogers. That's what a neighbor is. It's being friendly and being nice to people. We all live next door to each other. We share sugar. We steal each other's Wi-Fi. I don't know what it is. You know, there's, <laughs> that's what we have neighbors for, right? That's what a neighbor is. But the idea of neighbor was much more to the Jewish people. The Old Testament describes the idea of, of neighbor as someone who is a fellow Jew or members of a closed community. By Jesus' time, the religious leaders had narrowed this down even more to mean people who thought, acted, and believed just like them. Let's put that in context. If you were a neighbor, that meant it was someone who looked like you, acted like you, talked like you, behaved like you, and believed like you. That was your neighbor. Now, when you think about the man's question, because he was a religious leader, he is an expert in the law, so he already knows this. He already knows that based on everything he was raised to believe, his neighbor is, he says, who's my neighbor? In his mind, he's like, I know exactly who it is. It's this guy who looks just like me, who talks like me, who believes like me. That is my neighbor. The question isn't asked out of an honest desire to know. He's asking because he wants God to give him an out. He wants Jesus to say, oh, who's your neighbor? It's someone who's just like you, duh. Nice and easy. But Jesus doesn't do that. In response to the question, he begins telling a story. And it's one of the best known stories in the Bible. You don't even have to be a Christian or even read the Bible to know this story. You probably heard the story, or at least the title attached to one of the characters, The Good Samaritan. It's used to describe anyone who stops and helps someone in need. Just Google the word uh, Good Samaritan, and you'll find at least 500,000 news stories using the term Good Samaritan. In fact, that's the way the story is usually taught. The moral of the story is to be nice to people who are hurting or in need of help. Remember at the very beginning, I said, I believe that this story has the answer to what is ailing our nation and our world. Because then if you hear that, then you know the moral of the story won't work. Because being nice to people will not change the world. Being nice has never changed the world. Which is why it's so amazing to see what Jesus is going to do in this story. In this simple story, he's going to completely upend and change the definition of neighbor and thereby change the meaning of what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So to Jesus' audience, the word had come to mean people who were racially like them, part of their own close society who believed and act and thought like them. You must understand that or nothing wonderful can come of what I'm about to tell you. Jesus' story begins this way. 
a Jewish man. This is important because most of Jesus' audience was Jewish. The main character is just like them. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. He's left at his worst, naked, broken, bruised, and close to death. It's not a pretty picture. You can see how bad it is by the response of the first person who happens to walk by the scene of the crime. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. The man is half dead, which if you remember, uh, the Princess Bride is mostly dead. And according to Jewish law, the priest would be unclean if he came into contact with a dead body. So here's a Jew, a man just like the injured man, but he refuses to help. For all the right reasons, the priest makes the wrong choice and walks on by. The story goes on. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. See, the next person to pass by also shares the man's faith. He actually works in the temple. Um, in context, perhaps he's on the host team, or helps park the camels, or gets the coffee ready. If he's really great, he works over with the kids' ministry. He too is Jewish, and he does one thing better than the priest. He actually walks over and looks at the half-dead man. But once he gets a good look, he also walks to the other side of the road, going out of his way to avoid him. So imagine for a second the crowd listening. Imagine the expert in the Jewish law. Jesus is telling a story in which a Jewish man who was left helpless and dying by his fellow Jews, which is completely the opposite of everything that they've been taught about loving your neighbor. If you're supposed to help anyone, it's the people who are like you. Jewish people are supposed to help other Jewish people. Those are the rules. So the audience is probably thinking, if the people who look and think and act like me aren't my neighbor, then who is? Where is Jesus going to go with this? The next words of the story show exactly where Jesus is going with this. Then a despised Samaritan came along. Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. I mean, if you think of the word despised, that means looked with absolute derision, with absolute hatred. There was nothing that they would like about a Samaritan. Way back, long ago, they had been part of the same family line. The Samaritans, too, were descendants of Jacob. But because of intermarriage and the conquest of the kingdoms, Samaria became full of people who were half-Jews. So for hundreds of years, the Jews had come to the views of the Samaritans as subpar, uh, almost animals. They referred to the Samaritans not as a people or a nation, but as a herd. In fact, an old Jewish saying says, a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. And knowing how the Jews felt about pigs, that tells you something. They'd rather touch an unclean pig than have a Samaritan hand them a piece of bread. Now, naturally, all this led to the Samaritans to not like the Jews either. They would frequently attack the Jews traveling from Jerusalem so that the Jews would have to go out of their way to avoid the entire region. That's like if you're traveling from here to uh, L.A. and you knew that if you traveled through Oxnard, everyone in Oxnard would beat you up. 
So you have to travel around Oxnard to get to where you want to go. That's the same idea. So the Jews would have to travel literally out of the, as far as they could out of the way to avoid going there. And uh, they lived in the same country. They're literally neighbors. They live in the same country, in the same county, in the same place, but they could not be further apart. They were divided, like our country today, by race, by religion, by politics, and they didn't see any reason to change it. It's been like that for hundreds of years. That's how it is. They hate us. We hate them. Let it go. So imagine what Jesus' audience is thinking. If Jesus managed to make us look bad, oh, he's really going to hammer the Samaritan. Because those guys stink. They're awful. But what does Jesus say? Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where, they t- where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. The despised Samaritan is the one who stops. He not only looks at the man, he soothes his wounds. He does everything he can to stop the bleeding and heal the damage that has been done. He makes his own journey more difficult by giving his ride up to the broken man. He takes him to the local motel and spends the night taking care of him. The next day, he hands the owner the value of two days' wages. Imagine that, two days' wages to ensure that the man has ongoing care and promises to pay for anything else the man might need. The tension in the air as Jesus is telling this story must have been electric. I mean, they've just been listening to the story. The two Jews won't do anything. The Samaritan, the, the, the Samaritan is the hero? What? Jesus? They're awful. They're horrible. We despise them. But Jesus looks at his audience and says, Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Who showed mercy? Who showed compassion? Who crossed every conceivable line to stop and help? The teacher of the law can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who stopped to help him. The one who stopped to help him. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself sounds easy until we realize what Jesus is saying here. When a revolutionary little story shakes up the nation of who our, or who our neighbor is, Jesus makes clear that our neighbor is not the person who thinks and looks and acts like us. According to Jesus, our neighbor is just the opposite and someone you really might not expect. Your neighbor is someone who may not share the same skin color as you did not grow up in the same type of neighborhood, may not believe the same way that you believe, may not go to the same kind of church that you go to. Oh, your neighbor is someone that you may disagree with politically. You see, in this story, Jesus is challenging you and me. He's saying to us, if we truly want to inherit eternal life, 
Because that's how the whole question started. Uh, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, here's how you do it. If we truly want to live the life that he has called us to, the one that we're called to and created for, then we have to see everybody, everybody, even the people with whom we disagree and have nothing in common differently than we do today. That is convicting as heck for me. I am a 52-year-old white guy. Surprise! (laughs) The idea that my neighbor isn't another bunch of white people, sure, I can deal with that. I, you know, I grew up in church. My parents were missionaries. I grew up understanding Jesus loved the little children of the world, right? And white, they are precious in his sight. It's easy when you're kids. Sure. My neighbor is anybody. I love, I, your neighbor, when you're a kid, your best friend is whatever kid happens to stand in front of your house that moment. Oh, you're in front of my house? You're my best friend now. I don't care what color you are, where you live. You're here. I'm here. Let's do this. As you become an adult, it's interesting how much harder it is to be okay with people who don't look like you, think like you, act like you, believe like you, vote like you. And we act like it's okay. Like the Jews, like the Samaritans, we live in the same nation with each other, but we treat each other as if we're complete enemies. If they had had Facebook back in Jesus' day, oh, can you imagine the stories? Like, post, post, share, share, post, post, post. Oh, I hate everybody. I hate everybody too. Oh, we like, let's be best friends. We all hate everybody. We've been created to be different. Because when we come into the kingdom of God, when we say to Jesus, Lord, I follow you, I accept you as my Savior, I am going to be different because you are different. When we do that, these boundaries have to be set aside. What divides us must be removed. Jesus is telling us to get up close, get personal, give up our own comfort, and care about the people who are not like us and not on our side. Because here's the kicker. If we claim the name of Jesus Christ and we don't get to say there's anybody who is not like us, there isn't a side. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, for you are all children of God if you go to Journey Church in Ventura. If you are, you, for you are all children of God if you are all brown-skinned people. Oh, I'm sorry, white-skinned people. I'm sorry. No, there's no skin color there. And all All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. It's gone. I don't get to put on my Republican Christian clothes, my Democrat Christian clothes, my liberal Christian, my white Christian, my black Christian. There's none of that. When I got Jesus, when I got baptized and I said to him, you are my savior, I will live and follow you. The clothes that I put on are simply Christ Jesus. And that's what all of us should have on. As Paul finishes, For you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! The world is built on boundaries and divisions. That's how it stays successful. Politics would not exist if people didn't get along. If there was happiness and hunger, you can't solve the problems of the world by everyone hugging each other. Singing kumbaya. Right? I mean, we can all hold hands for a while, but guess what? Eventually we're just going to get sweaty hands. What makes the difference is the fact that we realize boundaries and divisions are not what God has called us to. It's not what he's created us for. We do not get that right, and we do not have the privilege. The kingdom of God is built on loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's the opposite of everything you hear on the news. The world wants to tell us the way to solve the problem is to vote this way. Stand for this thing. Fight for this cause. Hold this sign. Fly this flag. I could say anything. If you think of the past year and a half of our lives, sure, it seems much worse, but guess what? This is nothing new. I was talking to my kids about this on the way up here. I'm like, you know, <clears throat> when I was thinking about this sermon, um, I was actually teaching several years ago at another church about the same idea about what was going on. I'm like, there was this big racial divide, and they're like, that's not new. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. We talked about it over the last year and a half. We, we marched for it. We, 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 we prayed for it. We've been working together toward racial reconciliation. But that's not new in the year 2020 or 2021. It's not new 2016. It's not new from 1965. It's not, this has been around forever. And the world has been telling us forever the way to fix it is to believe this way, do this thing, act this thing. Jesus is saying, no, stop it. Stop it right now. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What will work, what will make the difference is when we, the people who love Jesus, who have put on his clothes so that all that exists is Christ. There's no Duane, there's Christ. There's Christ. There's Christ. There's Christ. That's what we're supposed to see when we look at our neighbor. Jesus. 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 I'm not swearing when I say that. But holy Jesus, that's what I see when I look at you. I see our Savior. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care how you voted. I don't care what school you went to, what neighborhood you live in. What I know is that you love Jesus, I love Jesus, and that's what we're called to be. One church, one body, one family. When I was a, when I was a kids pastor, one of the things I loved about teaching was this kind of stuff. You know, kids are easy to teach. I mean, they're not. They don't listen as well as adults do, and they're much more distracted by things. Like if my zipper was down, they would be yelling, Pastor Dwayne, your zipper's down! Now I'm, now I'm nervous that my zipper's down. Okay, we're good. <laughs> Thank you. You're very kind. The thing I love about kids is kids aren't naturally for or against anything. Like I said, if a kid's standing in front of your house and you're a kid, that is your new best friend. When kids meet each other, they go, hey, uh, are you a Democrat? How'd your parents vote? 
We don't look at each other and go, oh, look, you, you got brown skin. I have white skin. They may just say it because you're like noticing, but it doesn't mean anything to them. Kids don't care about that kind of stuff. Kids aren't for or against anything except vegetables. That's like the one thing you could always uh, count on in the playground. It's like, what's your, what's your feeling about Brussels sprouts, right? Kids are like, I hate those things. I'm like, yeah, me too. It's okay to be against Brussels sprouts. I think Jesus is okay with that. But kids will play and interact with and love each other regardless of their differences. They don't care if a kid is, I mean, it's, until we mess them up, until they get old enough to know that, well, you don't dress as nice as I do, so we can't be friends. Oh, you don't go to the same school that I go to, so we can't be friends. Oh, your church is that church? <laughs> Sorry. Kids aren't like that. In fact, when kids see someone who is hurt or crying, they don't wait to find out the societal issues that might have caused it. Oh, you're bruised and broken? I'm sorry. Was that your parents' fault? Oh, I'm so sorry. Are you wounded? Oh, that must be because you live in that neighborhood. Dang, sorry. If a kid sees someone else on the playground who's broken or bleeding, what do they do? Teacher, we need a Band-Aid! And kids are like, yes! They see someone hurt, they all, con all congregate as fast as they can. What's wrong? Are you okay? Okay, let's figure out. I would watch kids on the playground at the school that my kids went to. Kid got hurt. All of a sudden, there's 10 kids there helping that kid walk across the playground. They're carrying him. Adults be like, I don't know if I can because we're not like each other. So, Kids know when someone's hurt, just go. Just love them. Just make the difference. Maybe we should watch our kids more than we watch the news. Maybe we should watch our kids more than we're on social media. They set a pretty good example for us. At the beginning of the story, the Jewish leader asked the question, who is my neighbor? You'll notice Jesus never answers the question. He never says, oh, by the way, the answer to the question is the Good Samaritan. That's the answer. He never tells the guy. Who's my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer. He just leaves that to us, his audience. He simply tells the story and asks another question. Which of these would you say was a neighbor? How do you answer the question? Because if you answer the story, the question, in the way that the man does, your response isn't optional. The last thing Jesus says in the story is, now go and do the same. That's not if you feel like it or if they don't irritate you. It's a command, and our Savior is telling us to go and do it, to go and do the same, to go into the world and be the Samaritan, to see beyond where we disagree, to see past what may divide us. Because if we don't, people, it's never ever, ever going to get better. It's our job to be the good neighbor to the world, to see our neighbors as Jesus sees them, because that's what the kingdom of God is built on. The world is broken. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. But Jesus fixes it. Our job is to share him with the world. We don't need to chant a slogan or share a post on Facebook. We don't need to stand up and sing, 
ebony and ivory. We need to live this out. To truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Because when we do, the world will stop seeing us. And they will see only him. They won't see our clothes. They'll see Christ. Our wonderful, amazing Savior. In whom there is no division, no sides, no us, no them. Just Jesus. Or as Paul said it, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Will you stand with me for just a moment? I want to close in prayer because I believe that, I believe that, like I said, this story has the power to change the world. But a story is only as good as it is if we don't do something about it. This church is incredibly diverse. So many people, so many colors, so many hearts, so many ages. And yet, it can start in this room. The difference that this could make in our world, in this country, in this state, in this county, in this city, if the people here looked at each other and said, it's just Christ. I just see Christ. And we take that out into our world. Let's be the good neighbor that Jesus has called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your forgiveness for, for our, our, our country, for our world that just refuses to see that you've created us in the image of God. We are made in your image, and therefore we are good, perfect creations that just desperately needs a Savior. So God, I pray that you will help us love our neighbor in a world that's so full of division, God, let our hearts not be divided. Let's not see politics. Let's not see race. Let's not see color or creed or income. Let's just see you. God, you've called us to go into the world and to be the neighbor. You said go and do the same. So God, we want to go and do the same. We want to commit to forget sides, to not worry about seeing what divides us and start seeing what unites us. And that is you, Jesus. Unite us in this room that we will see each other as Jesus sees us. That we will begin seeing our neighbor the way that Jesus sees them. That we will be the Samaritan in the world. That we will not walk by the hurting or the hopeless or the broken because they aren't like us. God, they are created by you to be loved by you. And it is our job to love them, to love each other, to go into the world and be the neighbor that you've called us and created us to be. Help us to live out this daily, Jesus, so that we can be you to the world that so desperately needs us to hear, to share the good news that you have for them. God, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for this church. It has already become a lighthouse in this community. It is already a place where you are making a difference in the city of Ventura because of it. And I pray that it will get even bigger and brighter, that more people will be touched because the people in this room watching us online, that anyone who calls this church home will say, I am not going to be divided. I am going to be united. One in Christ Jesus. 
committed to loving him and loving his creation, to loving my neighbor as I love myself. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We give you the glory. We know that you will change things as we trust you. So we give it all to you. Hallelujah, Jesus. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to join your journey. And I hope the message made a big difference in your life. And if it did, we just encourage you to go to journeychurchventura.com and let us know. Also, be free to share this message with your friends and family. We just love to impact as many people as we can. Once again, thank you for joining us at Journey Church Ventura.